What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 98 of the Robot Report podcast, which brings conversations with robotics innovators straight to you. I'm Steve Crow, editorial director of the Robot Report. Thanks, as always, folks, for tuning in. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, we ask that you please do so. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcasts, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify. You get the idea. Please subscribe, leave us a rating, give us a review. Joined, as always, by Mr. Mike Oitzman, founder of the Mobile Robot Guide. What's going on, man? Hey, Steve, we're closing in on episode 100 here. Almost there. Almost there. How many of these, do? and I, I should know this, I just don't. How many of these have you been involved with? I, I don't know. I think I came in around episode 30 or so, somewhere okay. in late 20s, early 30s. So Yeah, no, that sounds about right. That sounds and, I had, and then I had, you know, a couple dozen, a dozen mobile robot guide podcast before that that are still up and on the site that you can go back and listen to still getting plays every week do they really someone's listening to them yeah oh wow that's great yeah go check out the uh, old episodes of the mobile robot guide podcast too that's awesome uh well we do have to say you know we, we're recording this on thursday november 10th but we do have to kick this off saying uh happy veterans day to all the men and women out there uh who have served i know mike this is uh, obviously a very special time for you as your son is currently serving but uh if anybody was listening to this who has served or is serving you know we certainly appreciate your service yeah and we're we are personally very proud my son just got promoted to sergeant in the u.s marine corps so that's a big milestone not everybody makes it that far in their career and so we're super proud of him and his commitment uh going forward yeah it's tremendous so congrats to you and your family on that and you're doing something fun this weekend too for veterans day right yeah, I'm going to go ahead over to the Aerospace Museum in Sacramento. Uh, it's open every weekend, but I, what's going on on Friday, and, and I look, I don't want a whole crowd there because I want to enjoy it myself too, but the, they open up all of the aircraft cockpits on Veterans Day. Normally, I think on a normal weekend, they maybe have one aircraft cockpit open that you can j sit in and you know experience what it would be like to fly that aircraft. But I guess uh, uh, on Friday, tomorrow, uh, they'll have all the aircraft uh, cockpits open and you can go check out all the aircraft uh, that they have out on the tarmac behind the museum. Are you going to be taking pictures or videos? Can you? Are they allowing yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll bring, I will have my camera and I'll be taking lots of pictures. Oh, cool. Well, I look forward to seeing some of those. But once again, happy Veterans Day. Thank you to all the men and women who have served or currently serving for all the sacrifices that you've made. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, on the show this week, Mike, one of my favorite interviews I think we've ever done uh, Samantha Johnson, she's the founder and CEO of Tatum Robotics. They're a Boston-based robotics startup building a communication tool for people with deaf blindness. Those yeah. are people who can't hear and also can't see. Tatum Robotics, just under a month ago, won the Pitchfire Robotics Startup Competition at Robo Business out in Santa Clara, California. So they're what they're building, it's it's unbelievably impressive what they're building. They're building this anthropomorphic robotic hand to basically replicate tactile sign language for those with deaf blindness. Uh, so tactile sign language, that's their primary and often the only communication method for people with deaf blindness. So Samantha and her team are building this robotic hand that can, uh, again, reproduce that tactile sign language in somebody with deaf blindness in their hand. So to help them communicate and, and just learn more and, and be entertained and just to have more access to the world out there. So we get into the system design with Samantha. She talks about the challenges of building the system, the opportunities that are out there for a system like this. Uh, she talks about how she became passionate about the space. And I think my favorite part, Mike and chime in here, but I think my favorite part of the conversation was just her educating us on the general challenges that those with deaf blindness face. I think I, I said last week, I wasn't familiar with this, uh, you know, deaf blindness. Of course I am. Helen Keller, which you rightfully pointed out is probably the most famous person to have uh, deaf blindness, but just the everyday struggles that people with deaf blindness have to deal with is incredible. Yeah, she, she brings up some great examples of her interaction in researching the market for this and recruiting folks to join the, you know, the early uh, prototype uh, um, rollout of this. And indeed, it was a really engaging conversation. She's a, a well-spoken uh, startup executive, uh, 
still early in her career. So a lot of poise. I was really impressed uh, with this conversation. You're all going to enjoy this. And, and hey, we're doing something also unique this week, Steve, for the first time. Um, you know, this interview is also going to be available as a video podcast on the Robot Report YouTube channel. And we're doing this because we wanted to take the video. We're, we're getting it uh, American Sign Language uh, translated. And we want to put that up as a content for the hearing impaired individuals to also uh, enjoy the, the the conversation with Samantha. Yeah. And one of the things that came out of the conversation was just the lack of resources for, you know, all sorts of people that are, have are, are dealing with something like this. Right. There, mm -hmm. There's not a lot of ways for them to communicate with the outside world other than if it's uh, a translator that they've hired, maybe somebody in their immediate family has has become educated on different types of sign languages. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of avenues for especially the deaf blindness folks to be entertained in the world and just learn things. So this was a great idea by you to, you know, change the format of the, or put the interview into a different type of format to help get the word out there in any way, shape or form, right. To hopefully maybe it reaches one person and, and helps them in some way. Right. So a uh, great idea by you, but yeah. So we'll play that interview with Samantha a little bit later on in the show, but before we do that, Mike, we, uh, we will hop into the news. We do have to remind you folks about Robotics Engineering Week, which wraps up today, again, November 10th. This was, we ran it uh, since th this entire week, uh, online virtual sessions for free with some of the leading minds in robotics, focusing on some of the main challenges that are involved with developing commercial robotics systems. So we talked about sensing for manipulation and object recognition. Uh, Mike led a session earlier today on sensing for autonomous navigation and mapping, motion control, how to use simulation during the design and development process. We talked about cloud-based tools with open robotics and Wind River. So a lot of great conversations that hopefully help you folks throughout your robotics development journey, all available for free. If you haven't registered yet, all the sessions are available on demand. All you have to do to sign up is go to roboweeks.com. You'll see the agenda, you'll see the speakers, uh, and you can sign up for all the sessions that you want. And again, for free robotics engineering week. So that was a good time. Second time that we've done this, and I know we're already planning next year's robotics engineering week, which you'll hear more about in the coming weeks and months. Uh, to the news, Mike, somewhat of a slow news week, I think, but I think the most interesting story came from you and you introduced us to this new, was it called Deming inventory robot from a company called Spacey. Now we've seen shelf inventory robots before. This one is quite different. Yeah, indeed. You know, I've been following the the, the inventory market and in, in, look, Steve, uh, five, six years ago, uh, when I was leading the product management team at, at uh, Adept, which is now Omron, uh, we thought this was a holy grail application, the idea of using a mobile robot with a camera on top to go run around a store and do inventory. Um, and, you know, there have been a variety of companies that have come. Some have gone, uh, Bossanova, for example, uh, but also now uh, uh, Simbe and uh, Badger Technologies have solutions uh for this uh, that are um, effective uh, as well. But this Spacey robot uh, is different from in its configuration from all these other solutions, which um, honestly are, are built on top of mobile robot platforms that drive around on the floor uh, around the entire store. Um, of course, they need to interact and, and avoid running into people and other things on the floor. This Deming robot, way simpler solution to the same problem and what they've done. And you can find the story that I wrote uh, on the mobile robot guide. Uh, I interviewed uh, the Spacey CEO, uh, Skip Howard, for this story. And he, he's a he's a very interesting uh, gentleman. He's got a strong background in vision uh, and computer vision algorithms. So coming from that space to this idea of being able to image and and extract data, um, you know, fr from vision images. But this spacey robot, very simple system, Steve. It's it's a little uh, single motor, single axis uh, mobile robot that runs in its own little aluminum channel, and this is mounted on the opposite side of the shelf. So you could imagine they'll be on the top the top shelf. There'll be a 
uh, a track for this robot that runs all the way down the aisle on both sides. And there's a single uh, act, uh, camera that on the little mobile platform that runs down the aisle in this channel, and it images the other side of the aisle. Um, and then from that data, they're able to extract uh, uh, inventory information. They're able to count inventory. They're, they get a, it can build a 3D map using some photogrammetry type uh, algorithms that have already well mature, but they're applying it to this application here to be able to look at you know how product is stacked up on the shelf. And I just found this a, a fascinating, simple solution, much simpler than many of these other companies are, are, are taking to market. And I think uh, it's going to be a winner. I think you said this yesterday when we were talking about this, but correct me if I'm wrong. It's it's like you're like, oh, that's the way that this should be done, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, I think BrainCorp also, you know, they've worked on some floor scrubbing robots, and I think they recently act on invent an inventory scanning mechanism as well. So it's a, a dual purpose robot, right? Not only mm -hmm. is it now cleaning the floors, it can also take inventory at the same time. But again, you have some of the same challenges that some of the other companies you mentioned, Bossa Nova mainly have had is, well, you're only taking the inventory of a certain product when the robot happens to be in that aisle, right? Mm -hmm. This system seems much more scalable, uh, much more straightforward. It literally runs uh, up and down or, or side to side on the front of a shelf, basically, right? In a store, yep. taking pictures of the opposite shelves on the other side of the aisle, right? And it's... So it's low powered. I would assume it's low cost. Yep. It's not uh, obtrusive to people who happen to be in the store. It's just like, oh man, this is why. Why hasn't somebody thought of this before? You know, and and uh, is this a brand new solution? Like, what do you know anything about market uh, status? Are they out there yet? Do they have customers? Is it a prototype? Do you have any information about that? No, they they have actually been to market for about a year now. And I, I'm not sure how it fell under our radar until now with this latest release, which has more features now. So I stumbled onto this story because of the press release announcing new features and a new uh, version of this. But uh, it's they do have customers and they are actively deploying uh, across a variety of stores um, all over the, the U.S. and North America at the moment. So, uh, you know, if this is an application that sounds interesting, you know, you should go check out the, the story for more details. A great little video uh, on there that uh, sort of shows how it operates. Yeah, it's tremendously impressive, again, how simple it is. And I think the key is how, how solid is their imaging technology? That's mm -hmm. ultimately going to be the key. I, I spoke with somebody at Robo Business, and I know I shared with this story with you off air, but there was somebody at Robo Business who I've known in the industry for years, and somehow we stumbled down that path about what the heck happened to Bossa Nova and their systems. Of course, they had the infamous fallout with Walmart, right? Walmart signed a, a longer deal with them to expand uh, the number of robots that were used in Walmart stores. And then suddenly out of nowhere, Walmart canceled the deal. Everybody says what, and, and since then, Bossa Nova's pivoted their entire business model, which we wrote about on the robot report, I don't know, a year ago or so, maybe even longer than that now. But this gentleman and I were talking about what the heck happened to Bossa Nova. And there was a rumor out there, Mike, and we were never able to get anywhere further than it. it's just an unsubstantiated rumor that a Bossa Nova robot had hit a Walmart customer in a store. And maybe that was what forced Walmart to shut down things. And this gentleman said, that's not true. That's not what happened. He was blaming the fallout basically on a, a, a the lack of capability of Bossa Nova's imaging technology, saying mm -hmm. that Bossa Nova couldn't see depth images on a shelf. So literally all the Bossa, and again, this is not me, this is from someone in the industry, all that the Bossa Nova robot could do, they, they were saying, is tell if a product was either in stock or out of stock. Completely out of stock. It, it completely out of stock on the shelf. It, it couldn't tell you know, let's pick, I think one of the pictures in the story that you wrote was a can of Folgers coffee. Their system could not tell if there was multiple Folgers coffee, you know, canisters on a shelf. It's either there mm -hmm. or it's not, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the lack of data that their system was able to pr provide, according to this one source, was really the downfall for Bossa Nova Robotics. I'm sure there's other factors too, right? Cost and there was changeover in leadership at Walmart at the time. But I think, you know, even this this Deming system is 
looks to be a lot simpler to deploy and scale and operate and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it still comes down to the, the, the technology and their ability to see those depth images, which you're saying they're claiming they can do. That's that's right. Yeah. I, again, I, I haven't seen the output from it, but they claim that it's enough to create a you know 3D uh, image of the other shelf, and to, from that information, then be able to count you know how many items are stacked up, because it's taking multiple images from different angles as it goes stitching down. Stitching them all together, right? And stitching it all together again using the, those photogrammatic uh, type of algorithms that again are already well mature now for other applications. You know, in drones and and drone inspection those type of things yeah right so we'll follow that story but again we'll we'll link to the story that mike wrote on mobile robot guide in the podcast show notes so that you guys can check out the video uh if you haven't already heard of this solution but it seems pretty cool and uh, we'll continue to follow up with them uh moving on here mike uh another merger happening in the robotics industry two lidar companies coming together ooster and Validine announced uh, earlier this week that they're merging. Somewhat surprising, I guess, that it was these two companies that they're both publicly traded. Did they both go through SPACs recently? I think they might've both gone through SPACs yep. uh, within the last year or so. And this was interesting. I also shared with you, you know, so Robo Business was held mid to late October out in Santa Clara, California. I was actually sitting uh, outside of the exhibit hall that we had there uh, in a meeting uh, on the computer and at a nearby table, there were two gentlemen. I don't know who these gentlemen are. I wish I did at this point. Um, but they were very, <laughs> very deep in detail uh, talking about financial earnings between these two very LIDAR companies, Ooster and Validine. And they were going through them and breaking down. I don't know which one, but why one of them was not doing very well. And it was about the cost. To, it, it was costing them to generate the amount of revenue that they were generating. But obviously, when a deal like this happens, it's been in the works for a number of months, if not longer right. than that. But it seemed like there was somebody at Robo Business who knew that this was happening. And there I am, like a dummy, not really paying attention to it, not thinking much of it. And then not even a month later, the, the two companies say that they're merging together, um, which, I don't know, maybe these two companies coming together is a surprise. But you and I have talked, you know, and others have mentioned this, that the LiDAR industry consolidating should not really come as a surprise to people. Uh, right. Yeah. And it, I think, again, there's been this long promise of uh, autonomous vehicles being the huge market that would bring the price down on these important sensors that are necessary for uh, uh, perception in mo autonomous mobile robots as well. So there, there's, that's been the long promise. But as we know, you know, the autonomous vehicle market still uh, in its early stages hasn't reached that uh, that large market adoption yet. So I think many of these companies are struggling as a result. And there are, you know, a number, quite a few uh, LIDAR companies out there delivering products that, you know, basically do the same thing now. Right. And so the consolidation, I think is a, is a pretty uh, expected outcome for some of that. Yeah. And, and take an autonomous vehicle. We recently were at the Waymo Depot in San Francisco. We've posted one of the videos of the robo taxi ride that we took through San Francisco. If you haven't seen it, it's basically uh, we've condensed the uh, almost 30 minute ride down to about 15 minutes through San Francisco. Now, their vehicles have multiple LIDAR sensors, multiple other types of sensor modalities on their vehicles. But mm -hmm. and I forget ex the exact number of vehicles that they have in that San Francisco depot, but I think it was somewhere around a hundred, you know, give or take. Right. So, and that's gotta be one of the larger fleets of autonomous vehicles out there. Certainly they have some in Phoenix and some, in some other areas, but yeah, there's not, you know, when it comes to autonomous vehicles, it's not the scale that anybody thought it would be. It's uh, not the hundred hundreds of thousands yet. Not even close to that. Yeah. And, yeah. and it won't be probably for some time. Right. Yeah. So, and and kudos to Kyle Vote. He's the co-founder of Cruise. I think he's now the CTO or the president, something like that. But uh, they're a leading autonomous driving company out in California as well. We we wrote an article about his prediction that he shared early in 2021. He he said that this was going to come. And again, maybe not as a surprise, but at least he put it out there. And his whole point was there's so many of these customers. Uh, sorry, there's so many of these LiDAR companies out there building essentially the same technology. Maybe they work a little bit differently here and there, and their customers all overlap. There's only so many autonomous vehicle companies. There's only so many autonomous mobile robot companies. There's not enough customer base to go around for all these companies. And 
you know, yep. almost two years later, right, uh, from Kyle's prediction, and then it's happened. So Wooster and Valentine coming together, probably not the last, you know, merger, or, you know, maybe there's something a little bit more negative uh, to come for some other LiDAR companies out there. But we'll also keep an eye on that. Uh, last thing, Mike, before we get to the interview with Samantha Johnson from Tatum Robotics, uh, I know you're pretty excited about the Indy Autonomous Challenge race that's taking place tomorrow. Yeah. So the 2022-2023 uh, 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 season begins, I guess, if you want to call it a season for autonomous racing, but uh, a whole new crop of teams. And of course, of course, those teams are made up of, of students, PhD students at universities around the world. Um, they have reassembled their uh, teams with new generations of, of uh engineers and students so that that's really what this is about everybody graduated in the spring and now they've got new teams so they've got uh, new competition to go through and of course the vehicles not of course but the the vehicles are upgraded they've got more power which means they're going to go faster which is exciting and so the the first race uh, kicks off tomorrow that's friday uh, it's taking place at the dallas motor speedway uh, but the good news is that uh, it's going to be simulcast on twitch uh, so that's great. You'll be able to watch it from home or watch it again. If you're listening to this after Friday, you can go back and, and watch the replay uh, at your leisure. And uh, I'll have a quick article that I'm going to post this afternoon on the robot report with details about how to see that. Plus we'll put it in the show notes. Awesome. Good luck to everybody participating into that, in that challenge. And again, check out the uh, Twitch stream. I'm going to try to check out some of it tomorrow as well and to stay updated on all the latest robotics news we have you folks covered with our network of robotics websites you can check us out at the robot report mobile robot guide robotics business review and collaborative robotics trends all right mike we're joined now by samantha johnson she's the founder and ceo of Tatum Robotics. Tatum Robotics is a boston-based robotics startup they're building an independent communication tool for people with deaf blindness. Uh, for those who are not familiar with that, deaf blind individuals, they can't see and they also can't hear. So Tatum Robotics actually took home first place at our Pitchfire Robotics Startup Competition uh, just under a month ago at Robo Business. So Samantha's here to tell us all about her company, her solution, how she got started down this path. Uh, Samantha, first off, thank you for being here. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. Yeah, no, our pleasure. I think the, the first place to start is just sort of introduce yourself to the audience, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, and then we'll get into the technology here in a few. I'm the founder and CEO of Tatum Robotics. Tatum Robotics was founded about a year ago with the goal to bring the first independent communication tool to the deafblind individuals. And deafblind individuals, as you mentioned, they can't hear nor see, and the way that they communicate then is through tactile sign languages. So instead of visual sign languages, as you can imagine, they're just kind of speaking to the person in front of them. Instead, they actually hold on to the hand of their signing partner and receive the signs into their palm. And I first became aware of kind of the deafblind communication vacuum actually in a class that I was taking during my undergraduate at Northeastern University. I was, although I was studying bioengineering, I was interested in assistive technology and disability communities. So I was taking a sign language class and I met a deafblind woman during that class. And in working with her and communicating with her, I learned that she does not access Braille, which is very common for deafblind folks, especially those who become deafblind later in life and don't have access to the education or maybe have multiple disabilities. And as a result, if she did not have an interpreter directly next to her or a communication partner that knew how to sign directly next to her, she was not able to communicate with them. So as I continued my education, the COVID pandemic came around and social distancing was a huge hit to this community, as you could imagine. As interpreting services stopped, deafblind people were completely out of access to news, resources, healthcare. And we really ramped up at that point. I started as my master's thesis. And after graduating, that's when I founded the company, pulled a team together, and have been developing ever since. Interesting. So, how, how big is this uh, community uh, of deafblind folks worldwide? In other words, I mean, how big is your market for this opportunity beyond just sort of the life changing parts that we're going to talk about in terms of what it, it does? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something people are always surprised to hear. I think if if you can think of somebody with deafblindness, you think of Helen Keller. But 
and worldwide, they say approximately 0.2% of the population has deaf blindness, severe deaf blindness. And in the US, there's actually a much higher population. So about 0.8% have severe deaf blindness. And it can equate to about like 100 million people worldwide who have hearing and visual impairments. And of course, this can be arranged so that can be, you know, hard of hearing and low vision to complete deafness and complete blindness. So we're really targeting with this technology, specifically those with severe deaf blindness, so that like 0.2 and 0.8%. And we assume that there's a higher prevalence in the United States also because we do have the infrastructure here, the education, that people who do have deaf blindness tend to come to the U.S. for education and some support. If you, if you can, you know, I, I think a lot of us take for granted our faculties that we have that work well, right? Just take us, uh, how how limited is somebody with deaf blindness? I mean, their their day-to-day is just so completely different than anything that you or I can imagine dealing with. And the best that you can, just sort of tell us, how do they go about their day? You know, I, I know they rely, which is why you're doing this, they rely so much on other people to help them get through their day, just sort of paint that picture for us as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. I have actually a really interesting story. There's a deafblind woman we work with pretty frequently. And the first time we went to go visit her home, we had met her in person and she mentioned to meet her at her home at 11 a.m. And me and one of my employees showed up at her home and we wondered, how do we tell her that we've arrived? You know, we can't ring the doorbell or knock on the door. And so we just waited outside. And eventually she wandered out and we grabbed her arm and began signing with her. And I asked him, like, how would you have known if somebody was outside? And you also, she doesn't know what time it is. She doesn't know that it's 11 and therefore we should have arrived. And she mentioned that if the door is unlocked, people just come in. And we're like, wow. So imagine you just, someone just comes up behind you and grabs your arm. And that's how you know somebody is in your home. And we walk into this woman's home, all the lights are off, you know, she can't see, it doesn't really matter if there's lights on. And she was just sitting at her table waiting for us to arrive. And I think that really is a lot of the consensus that we've heard from the deafblind population is just the boredom factor is really what we're really trying to support as well, that access to entertainment, because boredom and isolation really does lead to mental health problems as well and challenges. So although some deafblind people absolutely have jobs or very engaged in their community, there is so much downtime in the deafblind community that because, again, they don't have someone in their immediate contact to communicate with, they don't have access. So that's something that as we've met more and more deafblind people, what they're really excited about is being able to read a book or access some sort of, you know, community outreach, like have a phone call or a text message with their peers. Well, and you mentioned before that uh, I would braille, although they could, they tactile, they can touch and feel. You, you mentioned that that's not necessarily prevalent in for a, a larger part of the community. Can you explain that a little bit deeper? Yeah, absolutely. So there are definitely people who are deafblind who can access braille, but for the most part, if you do not have education from a really early stage, you won't learn braille at that point. Mm. And also, a lot of people deafblind may also have cognitive disabilities, so there might be that limiting factor. But really the biggest factor that we found with deaf blindness is usually you have deaf blindness through conditions such as Usher syndrome or charge syndrome. And because of that, you actually lose your vision when you're thirties, forties, and it gets to a point that your fingertips really just don't have the tactile sensation anymore to receive it. And it's just harder and harder to learn. And as a result, people don't pick it up as quickly. And we found actually a big population that we work with deaf Deafblind tactile American Sign Language, it's sign-based, not English-based, whereas Braille mm. is based in English. So it's all just spell. It's a modality of English. So it's just, everything is spelled just like English. But a lot of people don't know how to spell these words because they're used to receiving the signs for them. One of our first actually validations is we have our tactile signing system and we were finger spelling some words. And I we were spelling, I don't know what word it was, maybe frog. And the deafblind woman we were working with was like, I don't know what word it is. I can't know. I'm like, okay, like let's go through the letters individually. And she spelled F-R-O-G. And I was like, great, what does that spell? And she says, I have no idea. <laughs> and huh. that really shows that like if they were access braille, even if they can now, even if they could read the letters, they wouldn't be able to easily put together with that spells just because they don't have that in their back pocket. That's happened what been, haven't been what they've been using up until this point. This is a, a fascinating conversation for me. So my wife is a teacher by trade, right? So she's kind of stepped back since we had little kids. And what she's done for the last year or so is she's become a, a reading tutor in town. Now, this is with kids who, uh, young kids, second, third grade, they can see and they can hear, right? So they don't have any, uh, their faculties on, on, on those fronts work perfectly fine, but they have such a hard time reading because of the, I think the pandemic has played a part in that, but 
uh, I think our town may be quite far behind on the type of curriculum that they're using to help these kids read, right? It works for the kids who pick it up easily. It works really well. But for the kids where it doesn't work, there's a major gap in helping those kids who need a little bit extra help. So when you mentioned that this person didn't know what F-R-O-G spelt, it's just like, to me, like a bell went off. It's like, holy smokes, if these young kids are falling way behind and there's, you said 0.2% or whatever, very small percentage of people have deaf blindness, the complete lack of support educationally for them must be astounding. Right. Absolutely. There are so few institutions really that deaf blind students can really go to. Perkins School, especially sure. in Watertown, being a huge if you have a child with deaf blindness, Perkins is informed and usually involved in the intervention with that child. But even just as you mentioned, learning literacy is hard for abled students, for disabled students, and signing, especially American Sign Language, has been used a lot in those practices to help support literacy, and especially with students with autism or other cognitive disabilities. So as it's used in deaf blindness, it's a little bit different, especially with those kids at Perkins. Teaching children who are deaf and blind concepts can be very hard, especially like tangible things. You know, you can hand a deaf blind person a cup and you can then tell them the sign. But we were once asking them about how do you, what do you dream about? What do deaf blind children dream about and adults dream about? And how do you convey the idea of a dream to somebody? You know, Hmm. it's just, it's so intangible. And so that's really, again, the literacy factor. We now, we can't give them the sign for it. It's hard to explain. And now we want them to know the word. (laughs) So there's just so many factors that come into play there. Interesting. So, so let's, let's talk about what it is that uh, you've invented and, and how that is going to change the lives of of these folks. So, so tell us about uh, the solution. Yeah, absolutely. So what we wanted to do was really try to preserve as much of signing culture that we really could. So deafblind people communicate through tactile sign primarily. And as we mentioned, they hold on to the hand of their communication partner and they receive the signs directly into their palm. It looks quite like magic and it works very well for them. And we really didn't want to come in, especially as abled engineers and transform the way that they communicate. We want to really preserve as much of that culture because so much of deaf and deafblind culture is in the language that they use. And so what we did is we've developed these highly collaborative anthropomorphic robotics. So designed out of all flexible materials, we've made a 18 degree of freedom hand wrist that we're actually able to input, for example, the word frog and it will sign the word frog and that deaf blind person can hold on to it to receive the signs into their hand. And this will really help them get access to not only entertainment, we actually have, we're pulling books, eBooks and we tr- translate them out of ASL into, we turn it out of English into ASL to really, again, preserve that language because English and ASL, again, are two completely different languages. So we have developed our own novel translation between the two languages output onto the device that the deafblind person is able to hold on to to access books. You as a non-signer could sit there and type to talk with them and have receiving back and forth to actually create these new modalities of communication for these deafblind folks while still preserving tactile sign the way that they're used to. So it's, it's a robotic hand that's recreating the tactile sign language that the, somebody with deaf blindness would have to pay for an expert or somebody in their family would have to be trained to do. This is another basically way for them to receive that sort of that communication. Right, exactly. We view it as a supplemental tool for interpreters. So interpreters are quite amazing at what they do. They're, again, the people that deafblind people really call to if they were trying to interact with somebody who does not sign. However, interpreters, as you can imagine, are very expensive because they are so good at what they do. And they're also, there's just shortages of them. So you can't just have an interpreter at your side at all moments. So we don't want this in any way to replace interpreters, but really to supplement what their work. So if you go out, you could still have an interpreter, but if you're in your home, you could now have this independence that you wouldn't have before or an education when you can't always have a teacher by your side, you could have this as a tool to really augment that. So, so I'm curious, ahead, let me, oh, yeah, let me ask this question. So what's been the reaction of folks the first time they've touched this device in your prototype? I mean, you explain them, they have no idea what a robot is to begin with, let alone this creepy disconnected hand that moves like a human hand. How have you explained that? And what's been their, the reactions of some of the folks? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely the first time we brought in deafblind folks, when the prototypes were so super early stage, you brought up a good point that deafblind people do not have experience with robotics nor technology as a generalism. Yeah, And so we asked them to put 
you know, hold on to this robot. And a lot of them are like, whoa, <laughs> you know, you can see the shock in their eyes and they just try to like pick it up and lift it around. Just like if you handed somebody something they've never seen before, they spin it around, try to feel all the edges. And what's been so exciting, especially as the prototypes have gotten so much better and have really been able to recapitulate these signs so much better is the excitement that these deafblind people see. We have people crying in our offices, really talking about how this could be so life-changing. We have people try to steal them off the desks when they leave because they want them in their homes. They can see that it can be beneficial. And I think that is really rewarding as well for us as engineers to know that we're going in the right direction as well, that not only are we making a tool that's cool in robotics, you know, like low cost, anthropomorphic, collaborative, but it's also going to be really useful at the end of the day for these deafblind folks who really see that this could be really rewarding. That, wow, that story yeah. of them trying to steal them off the, the <laughs> that reminds me if you see the, and I probably cry every time I see these videos is there's a video of a, of a young person, a young kid and they're deaf and then they get these new uh, ear implants and they hear their, their parents voice for the first time or they get the, these special glasses that let them see color for the first time. It's a magical experience, right? Yeah. And again, things that we on this call just take for granted so much, right? So this is super cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about the hand itself. Um, I, I, if we can share videos, you know, on the website, when we run this podcast, you know, that would be great. Cause I think that will help people certainly see exactly what it is that you're doing, but the hand itself is super sophisticated with all the different joints and the flexibility that is required for it in able to replicate this tactile sign language. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something when we first, when I actually first got started with this project, I had the idea and I imagined it was really going to be more of a software project than anything else. Because I imagined we could take an off the shelf hand and just kind of design it how we needed to in terms of the transitions and the hand shapes and the algorithms that way. But what we quickly found was the dexterity needed to really create the sign, the hand shapes for American Sign Language is quite intense. So every finger that we've designed actually has three degrees of freedom. So our MCP has a, has its own degree of freedom, the couple DIP, PIP, abduction, because each handshape is so different that if each finger does not have that dexterity, it's not mm -hmm. able to achieve them, especially differentiating between them. And another big factor is safety as well, as you could imagine. These deafblind people cannot hear the machine moving. They can't see the machine moving. So we really need to make sure that no matter what happens, they can't get stuck in, you know, rigid joints that are made of metal or linkages that create gapping as they flex and extend. So we've created this system that's all one solid print for these fingers that we're currently printing, but we're actually moving to casting, but it's all one solid piece so that there's no gaps that create that they could get stuck in because again, they're holding onto it as it's moving. So we've designed it in a way that can achieve all these different configurations while still being made in a way that would be safe for those users and compliant that way. And I can imagine speed. You talk about just how you did your hand today. Grippers move pretty slow or pneumatic grippers are bang, bang type of thing. But to, to have that dexterity to actually move fast and to keep up with a conversation, you know, with the, with the hearing person in real time, for example. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Signing is not slow. It's one of those things that sign language, American sign language is really, you could have a conversation on pace with a, an English speaker. And so as we're developing our actuators and making sure all of our actuation schemes are in place, it needs to be able to move fast. We don't want this to be inefficient for them to use. So as we've, you know, chosen, we, we are prioritizing the cost because as you mentioned, this needs to be accessible for deafblind people. So we have to work through government grant programs in that case, stay within their pricing guidelines. So we have to use these very fast actuators to make sure that it can achieve the handshapes in good time, but also make sure that each of the handshapes is very precise. So mm. we're actually mapping these handshapes from deaf and native signers. So we bring them in, do motion capture and map them onto the device themselves so that it's not just, you know, us again, able hearing sighted people mapping these handshapes. It's really a true signer that is actually recapitulating these handshapes onto the device. I wanted to ask you about that because you it is still then a software play for sure, but I was trying to figure out how are you programming each individual letter into tech or, or you're, so you're not doing that. You're taking that much, that must, not that it's, it, it's not easy, but it simplifies that process for you guys significantly, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, sign language, it, American sign language, it has a 26 letter alphabet. However, it also has a whole dictionary of signs, just like English does. So our finger spelling hand does a finger spelling. So again, you would spell frog, but our hand also plugs into, we're making a whole four degree of freedom arm as well. So it can really do complex signing. And in that case, there's thousands and thousands of signs. So if we had to manually program those, not only would it be inefficient, but it wouldn't really capture the fluidity of sign. 
So by bringing in these definitive signers, we're able to capture those signs much more accurately in the movements that are associated with them. So interesting. And one of the things you mentioned earlier, then I, we, I can have in my mind now what this device is ultimately going to look like for someone to to, to use. Um, but what's your your plan then for integrating, you know, to mainstream entertainment? Then you talk about eBooks, you talk about, I can imagine, you know, some sort of interface for me if I'm ta- inter- communicating with uh, an individual that I could talk and it would translate and then they would talk sign and then they would speak back to me. Is that is, is something like that going to be possible with this? What's your vision? Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of functionalities. We're starting with text-based communication mediums, mainly because of the needs of our translation algorithm. So mm-hmm. we're developing a custom, essentially Google Translate to move between the two languages. So uh, as you can imagine, that's much easier when the language is written accurately. <laughs> yeah. um, you go from text to um, speech to text, you're going to get some mistakes in there. So we're taking eBooks, especially we're using even like Spark Notes, so we can get, if they want the long version of the text, we could get the short version of the text. And our whole software for the whole system is essentially cloud-based. We have some a whole small, very thin robot client that essentially just moves to servos, but everything else is stored up in the cloud. So we can have the system be very custom. So not only can they choose the signing speed, their grammar, their vocabulary, but again, we can easily pull that eBook run it through our translation algorithm to move it out of English into the ASL that they prefer, whether that be more English, more pidgin, true ASL, and then output it. But not only do we want this, we don't want it to only be a one-way communication stream. So as you mentioned, having this allowed for communication with non-signers, we're also developing out a gesture recognition software. So you would be able to speak, it would translate output onto tactile sign. And then as a deaf person, deafblind person signs to response, our gesture recognition would be able to capture that and then send that back to you. So it would allow for you to communicate with a deafblind person. It would allow for two deafblind people to communicate from with each other from wow. far, which they can't do right now. They can't communicate with their friends from far. They can't call or text their friends. So now it's something that opens up the world for them that way like as well. You're democratizing, you know, the ability for someone to communicate with a deafblind person. Right. Their community yeah. suddenly isn't just the, you know, That's very gross. small population yeah. that knows tactile American Sign Language. It's now truly anybody who wants to communicate with a deafblind person. Wow, that's crazy. How did, can you go back to the motion capture for the use? How, can you just explain a little bit for myself how, how you're doing that? Yeah, so we wanted the gesture recognition to not only allow for, again, deafblind people to interact with the credit community, but also for them to interact with the device itself. So we don't want to have to have a complex series of buttons that they need to try to interact with. Again, they don't have a lot of familiarity with technology, so that would be a complex system. So we also wanted it to be able to interact with the device via gesture recognition. So they can just sign to the device, I want to read a book, and then they're able to access it that way. So we're doing gesture, we're doing motion tracking for multiple purposes. So we're doing uh, motion tracking for the gesture recognition. So we have to, you know, have multiple cameras that we overlay to each other to get accurate axes, but also we're doing that to track the shapes. And we've been working with a lot of partners in terms of actually trying to capture those movements more accurately. We have computer scientists, we have animators, we have deaf people that come in and really trying to make sure that those movements that we put onto the robot are accurate and our software makes sure that they're safe. So we can control the speeds of our motors. We can make sure that they're back drivable to make sure that as we put those movements onto the motors, that it's not only making the hand shape for the deafblind person, but it can change as their environments change as well. I'm really beginning to understand you've got uh, a system here that's you've got an AI and and software component. And then the robotics uh, aspect of this is, is really an incredible challenge way more than I understood in the two minutes you had uh, to tell us about this at uh, (laughs) robo business. So um, what have been some of the challenges then you've had to overcome getting the prototype built? And uh, I mean, I I assume some of that's money as well, but uh, just for a startup at your stage, what what have what have you had to overcome to get to this point now? Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit an important point there that there are just so many novel components as to what we're doing. So we're developing novel translation algorithms. We're also developing compliant robotics. We're developing this like gesture recognition software. So there's so many moving parts that really also requires a very diverse team. So our team mm. has software engineers, hardware engineers, but also linguists, deaf signers, native signers. So there is just so many people on the team. But starting with the hardware, a huge challenge was 
designing for people who cannot hear or see. And we as hearing sighted engineers don't always know those answers. And I remember our, one of our first prototypes, I developed out this silicone glove that I thought they would love because it felt so human-like and the deaf blind people wouldn't even touch it. They thought it felt like a monster. And oh. here I was, I was like, I've, I've found the perfect solution to the problem and they hated it. Um, I was actually going to ask you that because even with the hand that you have now, like, what does it feel like? It's got to be hard, right? Because it's I was gonna... all TPU right now. Okay. And we're looking into some urethane options as well. So we, it is all flexible. There's no rigid components in the hand itself, oh. again, for that safety factor. Um, but again, designing low, especially early stage prototypes that have only flexibles, you're really limited in the materials that you have, especially hmm. 3D printing, because a lot of flexibles you get into for molding or casting or things like that, that we don't have options, especially in the early stages of prototyping. And a lot of research is really going into, as you mentioned with these grippers, very low actuation, but they're able to have a really high grip force. Whereas we want the opposite. We want it extremely actuated and almost no grip force. So the literature to really go down that path is also quite limited. So designing this hand that has a lot of the features that are not common in a lot of robotics that are being developed now. But as we've iterated, we've really been able to really take advantage now of so much of additive manufacturing that's been accessible to us to really create a lot of prototypes that, because we're designing for people who don't know what they need. You know, they definitely, people have never been catered to before. So mm. we've had to make so many prototypes to, in order to really get the feedback that we need. And on the more um, AI front, in terms of our language processing, we had originally thought, you know, AI is so robust at this point, we can just use some Azure products and really develop out a translation algorithm a little bit more easily. But the data that you need for that just isn't something we have accessible to us. Mm -hmm. Again, tactile signing is so variable and so unique across demographics, across ages, across people with disabilities, and we need to be able to capture all of that. So we actually, now we had to kind of find people in different parts of the country, in different countries themselves, people of different ages, people of different education statuses, and be able to find these patterns within the language in order to translate between the two. So because of so much of what we're doing just hasn't really been previously researched, we had to kind of start really low, a lot of ground zeros for a lot of what we've been doing, which has caused a great amount of challenges, but also a lot of really interesting solutions as well that have come out of it. I'm, I'm curious, you know, so you obviously, like I mentioned at the top of this, uh, Tatum Robotics won the Pitchfire competition at Robo Business just under a month ago. Uh, Mike, they had five minutes to pitch, so we know everything about their company, of course, right? <laughs> um, but I talked I think as fast it, as I could. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you did a tremendous job. Um, I would just wonder, obviously, I think the, the social good aspect of this was probably a big reason, right? There's, I don't think anything ever like this. Um, there's a tremendous number of people who have deaf blindness. What did you hear from the judges as to why you were the the winner compared to the four other startups who also had really cool products that they're working on? Yeah, and the other competitors were so incredible with the innovations that they were working on. A lot of them very niche in themselves that yeah. a lot of people aren't working on. And I think in speaking with the judges afterwards and hearing their questions, I think the really the track that we have forward is very clear. I think that because there are so few kind of competitors in this space and our go-to-market strategy has been very kind of clear in terms of how we can access these grant programs so that the deafblind individuals don't have to pay this out of pocket. These deafblind individuals who most cannot work, you know? Mm. And not only that, but the what we're taking advantage of in that's new in, if we tried to do this project 10 years ago, we couldn't in the resources that we've used and that we've needed that we've been able to do at this point because of the technology accessible to us has been quite remarkable. But I think hearing the judges feedback as well in terms of making sure that the technology is extremely robust before we move it into commercial applications was also very helpful because I, I forget which judge mentioned it, but the robotics break all the time. What's what's that next step? Definitely people can't troubleshoot. <laughs> you know, they don't know what's broken or how to fix it. So really that advice in terms of how to really make sure all the boxes are checked before we put this into deafblind folks' home to make sure that not only is this a really successful robot, but is a positive experience for those trying to use it as well. Uh, so yeah. where are they going to how, how are they well, going to call support? Now. Yeah, no, that's that's right. If it if something on one of your, I mean, what's the thought right now? If something was to go wrong with the hand, which it will at some point, right? This it, is it's it happens with every single product in the world. Um, what's the what's the way that they'd reach out to you? Would they have to wait for someone to be there that they can tell, or is there some built-in feedback mechanism? What's the thought at this point? 
Yeah, we're trying to close the loop as much as possible. So really we have, and we're integrating sensors as often as we can. And again, this whole system's cloud-based. So not only can we see when they're using it, we can see what they're using it for. And by integrating these sensors, we're able actually to make sure that if we think the hands in this configuration, we can actually have a way of checking that. So we might actually even know that it's not working before the deafblind person is able That's to cool. access that through initializations mm -hmm. and by just tracking how the system's working over time. So hopefully, and that's how we perceive it to be working. So hopefully they wouldn't even have to reach out to us. We would already know. But integrating as many features as possible to ensure that if they do have a problem, you know, there's a button on it. And a lot of great things about these grant programs as well that the government is has in place for deafblind people to access this technology. A big one is I Can Connect in Massachusetts. They're based out of Perkins. Is they also have crew there that also helps with maintenance. So they're familiar with the assistive technology and familiar with the needs of the deafblind folks that they service. So not only are we there to support the maintenance, but hopefully that infrastructure already in place through these grant programs will also be supporting with that. Have you, have you ever seen some of the robotic hand work that's being done at Johns Hopkins University? Yeah. So they have a hand, a robotic hand that there was a gentleman, he, I don't know, I forget what, I'm, I'm going to mess up the story. So I'm not going to share the details of why I think he had the, the need for the prosthetic hand, but it, I think the story is this is like the most advanced or expensive prosthetic hand ever built. And they were testing it in their labs for so many years. And they finally got it to a point where they were comfortable sending it home with this person. So they really wanted to collect that data of how it worked in his everyday life to try to provide real feedback and see where things needed to be tweaked. And I remember one, it was within the first week that he had it, he woke up and he went to put it on like, and two of the fingers were stuck in one <laughs> And that's what they did. They remotely tapped into it, right, through the cloud, and they were able to find a software bug. And I think he was trying to play the piano one day, uh, and he couldn't. But they just remotely tapped into it, which is smart, right, to build it out that mm -hmm. way. Right. And plus, again, like, there's definitely people everywhere. We definitely wouldn't be able to be in their homes. To, that yeah. would go against everything we're doing if we'd have to be in the homes with them. Right. Um, but we're also, again, just as you mentioned, like, not only we bring in deafblind people as frequently as possible because, again, their feedback is what's important. So at least once a week, we have deafblind people coming in. We also have very structured validations that we host, often at Mass Robotics, where we're based. And we bring in, we just had one a couple weeks ago. We brought in over a dozen deafblind folks to give us feedback in the lab, but we're also the next step that we're actually aiming towards that we're hoping to use the funding actually from that pitch fire win is to really start pilot studies. So not only are, are they able to use it, you know, when I'm standing next to them, making sure that it works, but if we put it into their home, are they able to access it easily? Are they using it? What are they using it for? And really getting a lot of that feedback as well before we then move into the next stages. Well, as you started the conversation, you'll have to add that Alexa skill so that the ring camera knows someone's outside and can alert them yes. <laughs> with some sign that someone's waiting at the door. Right? Yeah. What's also really fun about working with deafblind individuals is they just have been so underserved for so long that there's so much technology that's really missing from their day-to-day -day lives that would mm. very simple technologies that could make it infinitely easier for them to conduct day-to-day -day activities. And especially as our team of all, you know, young engineers, we're always so excited, like, oh, well, what if we made this technology? What if we made this? And it seems like a population that we could very easily support going forward beyond just communication, but with navigation, with, as you mentioned, just support tools to help them make sure that they, people in their homes are not strangers. Right. So what's the next step on your path for the, for the growth of the company? Yeah. So hopefully the next step we are planning either for the end of this year, the start of next are those pilot studies. So we have a few deafblind people who came into the validation a few weeks ago and really understood the device. They understood the goals of it. We're able to show remarkable recognition. We were doing finger swelling trials and people were getting hundred percent recognition on it, that they were really, it was very clear to them, the goals and what we were trying to convey. And so we've been working with them in terms of trying to set up these pilot studies. So hopefully we're going to put these devices into the homes of the deafblind folks so they can, again, access ebooks and just some basic functionalities at first to make sure that, again, they can use it and they do use it. And then from there, the fun begins when we integrate that hand into the arm. So this whole time, we've also been developing compliant robotic arm. So after we after the finger spelling hand works, which is great, we then have to put that hand onto the arm to do Again, that real signing of the thousands of signs and really make sure that that is safe and that is very functional. And the reason we've separated them out for so long is there's only so many hand shapes in American Sign Language, specifically, I think there's like 45, and a lot of them are captured in the alphabet. So if they aren't able to receive the alphabet, they really won't be able to understand the rest of the signs. So we've spent years now really making sure that the alphabet is so clear. And at this point, we're at over 90% recognition rate across all people, some people receiving 
reoccurring 100% recognition rates. So now we feel confident that the next step would be to put that on the arm and really start iterating on that device as well. Hmm. This might be the, the same question, but I'll ask it in maybe a little bit different way because you never know who's listening to this. Um, you know, I know hopefully you met some potentially valuable connections at Robo Business, but to get to those next steps, like what do you, what do you need help with? You know, what, what are some things that maybe somebody who is listening to this uh, knows someone else who can help you out? Like what, what are some of the things that you're looking for help with going forward? Yeah, absolutely. One of the main things that we're always looking for is just kind of like DFM work. A lot of work that we're doing is kind of constantly prototyping and iterating, but very little work has really gone towards making sure that that device will be robust over long periods of time. And that's something that our system with these integrated sensors, we're hoping going to get a lot of feedback on that, but also the whole structural integrity of the system really, really needs to make sure that, again, if they accidentally put too much weight on it, it's not going to, to break. It will work over long periods of time. And always, 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 we need more signing data. We need to make sure that this device, we can map from multiple different people and we can capture their grammar patterns. So if anyone knows any deaf or deafblind individuals or native signers, please send them our way. We would love to have a chat with them and possibly bring them in for some motion capture to maybe their signs could be on the robot too. Oh, that's great. And if anybody from Sertronics is listening, uh, let's help yes. out. The yes. <laughs> Uh, they could use your assistance. And I think we'd be remiss if we did. you are part of the mass robotics community, right? We know Joyce and Tom and Russ and the whole crew very, mm -hmm. very well. Just can, how helpful in, in, uh, have they been on the journey for Tatum Robotics up to this point? Mass robotics has been involved in such an early stage. Right when I graduated, I actually really didn't have, I was starting this project as an engineer, not as a person planning to create a business out of it. And which. <laughs> <laughs> um, Look how far that got me. So um, the, uh, right when I was about to graduate, actually, the Canadian National Institute for the Blind reached out and gave us a very small grant to keep going, to keep working. They really saw potential in this. And I really didn't know what my next step was at that point. Again, I was not a person who created a business before. I didn't know what that entailed. All I knew was that I needed to keep working. And I found Mass Robotics just through the internet. And, and I came in and met Joyce and she immediately found a great home for us here. We're working also with the Institute for Experimental Robotics at Northeastern in collaboration with them. And they've been so helpful in terms of giving us resources, spaces, and places to also showcase our work to find these potential, these network partners or these manufacturing partners that can support us. And being at Mass Robotics is a great place to be. We've have so many connections just with companies within the building who, you know, if we have, oh, we're trying to pick out a Hall effect sensor, is there one that you'd suggest or places that we can bring in investors and deafblind people to test out the device, which is always wonderful. I'm not going to speak for Mike. This has been one of my favorite conversations yes. that we've, we've done on the podcast. You're amazing. Uh, this is an incredible uh, journey that you're undertaking here. Uh, the amount of good that you're trying to do is, is tremendous. So we wish you all the best. Samantha Absolutely. Johnson, founder and CEO of Tatum Robotics. Uh, if anybody out there wants to learn more about what Tatum Robotics is doing, uh, check out, they have some cool, uh, I'm looking at a video on their website right now. I'm not sure if this is the latest prototype or not, but you can check them out at TatumRobotics.com. Samantha, thanks so much for doing this and uh, I'm sure we'll see you soon. Thank you so much for having me. Always great to see you both. Once again, thanks to Samantha Johnson of Tatum Robotics for that great interview. Mike, any uh, closing thoughts as we come out of that interview? Well, I, again, I'm just thrilled to see the energy that she brings to this conversation. She's definitely passionate about this market, and I, I, I'm really look forward to following their progress going forward. Um, I, I hope uh, when we get out to Boston uh, next May for the Robotics Summit that we can drop by uh, the mass robotics uh, facility and actually have a chance to see one of these, hold it and, and experience it firsthand. Yeah. I wonder, you know, she spoke at the healthcare robotics engineering forum this past year as well. Maybe folks remember her from that. Uh, I wonder if we can get her to bring it. I'm sure she can bring it to the show next year. Mass robotics, our partner on the robotics summit and expo usually has a, a startup area, a startup pavilion where they get to showcase a bunch of their startups. So maybe we can ask Samantha to bring one of the prototypes uh, with her next year, yeah. but it's, it's fascinating. And again, make sure to check out some of the links in the show notes to the YouTube video that we're having translated. And also we'll share some of the videos and images of the product. So you guys can really get a good chance to look at exactly what this is and how it works. It's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, before we, we go, we do have to uh, promote the call for speakers for the robotics summit and expo, as well as the healthcare robotics engineering forum. 
Again, those take place May 10th and 11th here in Boston, Massachusetts. The events are design and development events. Obviously, the Robotics Summit's a little bit more general. Healthcare Robotics Engineering Forum is quite niche, focuses on healthcare robotics. But we do have our call for speakers for both events open at this point in time. Uh, if you want to be eligible, if you want to uh, have a chance to speak at this show, we're hoping 2,500 people this year. This past year, we had just over 2,000 people. So we're aiming for 2,500 plus Next year, there'll be 150 plus exhibitors on the show floor. So this show is really cranking for us. And it's thanks to all of you who have attended it since we launched it in 2018. But again, we're looking for people to come speak about designing and developing different types of commercial robots. What are some of the challenges involved with that? Uh, again, May 10th to the 11th, 2023 in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, we'd love to see you all there. Uh, also, I know a lot of people have been reaching out to this, to us about this, about the RBR 50 Robotics Innovation Awards for 2023. We are opening the call for submissions, I believe, December 1st. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, we're opening up earlier this year. We made that decision to get started on this. Yeah, so we'll see how that goes. But Dece December 1st, the entries are going to open. I think uh, we'll give you guys a month or so, maybe almost two months to get your entries submitted. Uh, the, the list, the final list, the winners comes out sometime in May. Uh, so we're giving ourselves a little bit more time to plan these. But if you've created something, if you've seen something, if you've used a robot that you think has, is innovative and it was introduced at some point in 2022, uh, it will be eligible for our RBR 50 Robotics Innovation Awards. Again, the call for submissions is going to open up here December 1st, so just a few weeks away. So be on the lookout for that. We'll obviously plug that again uh, when they open up. You'll see emails and articles from us as well. So Really won't miss that, but uh, looking forward to reviewing all those entries as we do every single year. So many great innovations out there. So it's, it's great, great fodder for us to, to dig through. But uh, that's going to do it, folks. Episode 98 of the Robot Report podcast. Thanks again for everybody tuning into the show. New episodes of the show drop just about every week. You can find us on all your podcast platforms, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple, SoundCloud, uh, you get the idea. Do us a favor. Do Mike and I a solid. Leave us a review. Tell us how great the show is. Uh, mention it to a friend or a co-worker. That would really help us out. And on behalf of Mike Oitzman and the entire crew, I'm Steve Crow. Thanks again. Happy Veterans Day, everybody. Take care. We'll talk to you again next week.